We are thankful for that pay on to our Lord and Savior. He is worthy of our praise, and it has um, blessed our hearts to hear fresh about the Lamb of God, and we glorify him. Now we're going to hear from his word. Matthew chapter 20, 24 through 28 are the verses under consideration this morning for us. Let me read them in your hearing. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I'm using as a subject for these verses this morning, the way up is down. The way up is down. If you're a sports fan, you're familiar with the term GOAT. It's an acronym, G-O-A-T, an acronym that means the greatest of all time. The GOAT, who's considered the greatest of all time in his or her sport are at his or her position in that sport. There's a quarterback who's considered the greatest of all time. There is a basketball player who's considered by some the greatest of all time. And I agree with those who say he's the greatest of all time. I'm, I'm biased, Michael Jordan. Okay, we'll go on. <laughs> According to Luke chapter 22, verse 24, a dispute arose among the disciples as to who among them was, quote, regarded to be the greatest. I suggest that they had the desire to be the goat before we knew about a goat in our time. The same issue of greatness among the original disciples arose earlier in Jesus' ministry. Here in this portion of the scripture, I didn't read the previous verses, but that where it's, that's where it stems from. In verse 20 of this passage that we're looking at, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. That's the mother of James and John, two inner circle disciples of our Lord. Now, there was probably a family connection here because the mother of James and John was the sister of the mother of Jesus, Mary. So here comes Jesus' aunt, <laughs> along with his two cousins, to petition him about the coming kingdom. You have to give this to him. They do, did believe a kingdom was coming. And they, their request was, and particularly hers here, is that her boys... James and John, would have uh, proximity to the person of the king, that's Jesus, and thereby have positions of prestige and power. Now, wouldn't you know it, 
after all this unfolding and the other disciples attend, they're, they're seeing all of this uh, unfold. And they, you notice in verse 24, they became indignant. Now, I suggest to you their indignation wasn't righteous indignation. Uh, they, they weren't upset because, guys, that's not the way you pursue greatness in the kingdom. No, that's not what it was. The deal is they were jealous. You see, they themselves harbored the ambition to have those favored positions in the kingdom. You say, how do we know that? I've already told you. They argued in Luke chapter 22 about who would be the greatest. This incident provided our Lord an opportunity to instruct his men on what real greatness is from the divine perspective. Not only them, but for us. This lesson is needed to be learned by God's people generation after generation after generation. So Jesus is going to teach them what it means to be great from God's perspective. He is going to teach them what servant leadership looks like. What servanthood looks like. He is going to begin his instruction, and we're going to use this as a heading, the means of greatness. There, there's one means that we can't follow, and there's another means that we must follow. Jesus begins by reminding his men about the world's way to greatness. You see that in verse 25 of Matthew 20. It says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They, they knew this. this is why he said, you know this, because they lived under Roman occupation. They understood what it was like to live under the dominance of Rome. So they instantly comprehended, yes, we understand that these rulers of Rome, they lord it over us. They are masters. In fact, let me just throw this in. You need to know this. In the text, the grammar here, it's, uh, um, I'll just tell you, nomic present tense, which means it's a general truth. Generally, that's the way it is. These Gentile or worldly rulers, they are masters over their subjects. They're self-seeking. They're self-glorifying. They are dictators. They're autocratic. We even see that in our world today. You can look around the world and you see autocratic leaders they want to rule with all authority in their hands. They lead by intimidation. But this is not the way it's supposed to be among believers. Peter understood this. Later on, writing his first epistle in chapter 5, verse 3, he said that elders or pastors are not to lord it over those allotted to their charge. Pastors are not to mimic the way the world leads. Pastors aren't to look at the CEO and the corporation or some other leader in the world and borrow from them how to lead believers. No, they're not to lord it over 
those allotted to their charge by the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Worldly leadership style is not to be a part of what is found in the church, whether it's pastors or anybody else. Not to do that. Jesus here back in our text here says, final clause, and their great men exercise authority over them. Let me tell you who the great men are. Why, why are they great? Well, they're great uh, in the world's eyes because of their personal achievement. They're distinguished. They're the eminent men. And these are the men who use their eminence and their achievement and their influence to exercise authority over others. That is, they seek to control others by their personal influence. This word great I find interesting. In the Greek, uh, the nominative is megas. Uh, it's in the plural here. But there are two words in the English language that come from this Greek word. It's rendered great here. You've heard them. Megalomania and megalomaniac. <laughs> megalomania. They were obsessed, that is, megalomaniacs. They are obsessed with the exercise of power. There are people like that in the world. They fetishize power and the exercise of it over others. Exercise control. These great men, some of them were megalomaniacs. And we have them in our, our world today. Say, why is that? Because men are fallen. <laughs> Do understand that. Fallen men, they get positions of power, and they love the power. And you know what Lord Acton said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's how they do it in the world. And what does he say here in verse 26? It is not this way among you. The world's way is not the way of the Christian. The values of the kingdom of Christ are different from the values of the world. Our Lord goes on to say here in this text, verse 26. Now get this, in contrast, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Hmm. A couple of things we need to notice right away. Jesus didn't rebuke his men from desiring, for desiring to be great. He didn't say, guys, it's illegitimate to aspire to greatness. He didn't say that. Greatness in itself, a desire for it, is legitimate. The desire for great usefulness in the kingdom of God is legitimate. If it weren't, Jesus would have told them. He would rebuke them and said, guys, you need to get that out of your mind. No, what Jesus does, he provides the means of greatness. Notice what he does here. Whoever, he 
individualizes it. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Boy, that is a reversal of all human ideas about what constitutes greatness, isn't it? Jesus turns it on his head. The world doesn't say, ah, I want to be great, so I'm going to serve you. No, the world says, I want to be great, and you're going to serve me because I'm great. And the more people I have serving me means I'm greater. Jesus said, no, that's not how you are great in my kingdom. From the divine perspective, you want to be great, well, then you serve. You serve. Somebody said, a servant? Yes, a servant. That's what you become. Servanthood. This word servant describes the lowest level of hired help, menial service. This is the secular word from it. We get our word deacon from it, as a matter of fact, but it's a, it just means that, a servant. It's not a dishonor. To be a servant is obedient leadership, selflessness, a humble life. It means to sacrifice for others. It's what Jesus is talking about. So greatness among us is based on our service to one another. You want to be great in God's eyes? Serve the other children of God, even sacrificially. God sees you then as great. That's what he's saying. This is further elaborated in the New Testament. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter here is telling us that some have the special gift. That special gift is a spiritual gift. It is a special enablement by the Holy Spirit to minister spiritually to other believers, to the body of Christ for their edification, for their help, to meet their needs. Some people in the body are specially gifted to serve and when they do, it's an expression of the grace of God. Think about that. When people who serve, who are gifted, and for the rest of us, when we do as well, do understand that is an expression of the manifold grace of God. You get that? God's grace is on display. Through his use. According to 1 Peter chapter 4, 11, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. His grace is on display, and he will be glorified through Jesus Christ as those who are specially gifted exercise their spiritual gift of service. You say, well, that may let me off the hook because I don't think that is my gift. Hmm. Let me give you this little thought. Those who are especially equipped with the gift of service do not have exclusive domain in the field of service to the body of Christ. Do I need to repeat that? 
Those who are specially equipped with the gift of service do not have exclusive domain in the field of service to the body of Christ. All believers are engaged in the ministry of mutual service. It's not reserved for a particular few of the gifted ones. You might wonder, how do you know that? Oh, good. I'm glad you asked that. You, you shouldn't know not to ask that. But since you have, you're, you're curious. I understand it. Galatians 5.13 enjoins us, quote, through love, serve one another. That's one of the one another's. It's mutual ministry. It doesn't say in that text anything about only those who have the gift. It's a blanket statement for all of us in the body of Christ. Now, let me say something about we're in a pandemic. And we don't get to meet regularly. We, we can't come together. However, that should not preclude us serving one another because there are ways you can serve, ways you can look after and look after, look, uh, show concern for other people. And some of the people in this church have done that very thing. You see, let me put it like this. Because we cannot come to this building does not mean we cannot serve one another. Let me go back to the spiritually gifted. What they do by observing them when we have opportunity, those who have been equipped by the Holy Spirit to serve, we can learn how it's done by observing them. As we progress through this, consider this, we serve through love. We are motivated to do the best for others. Agape is how we're to serve others. We're to serve also with an attitude of humility. Humility. Underscore that. Underline that. Italicize that in your mind, if you will. Humility is crucial. One cannot serve or be a servant to others if they are prideful. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 state this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Now, these verses really zero in on what's essential. I mentioned humility. You've got to have a humble mind, a lowly mind. The puffed-up mind is not looking out for others. The conceited person is not interested in what's happening in the life of another. Certainly not considering them as more important than themselves. <laughs> Wow. Let that sink in for a while. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Mm. I'm going to tell you something about servanthood. It is a warp and woof of Christian discipleship. 
inescapable. In the garment, garment of following Christ, servanthood is woven throughout it. You, you can't follow Christ without being a servant to others. Leaders are servant leaders. They use their power to meet needs of others. They use their leadership to do that. And I said, boy, that's tough. You're, you're talking about seeing others is more important than yourselves. Not doing anything from selfishness, as Paul tells us. How on earth do we do this? Because I know it, the reason Paul had to say do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit uh, is because we can do that, right? <laughs> We're still being sanctified. Well, how do we handle this? Well, here's the answer. The indwelling Holy Spirit. He supplies the power for us to overcome our natural self-centeredness. Our natural looking out for ourselves only. Our natural seeing ourselves as uh, the most important person on the planet. You know, it's all about me. He enables us to overcome the flesh, in a word. Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. That's how we do it. Now the water's going to get a little deeper here. <laughs> Verse 27. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. You said, I, I just had begun to swallow the servanthood thing. <laughs> and now we got to deal with a slave. Yeah, I want to be first, but doing it that way? First, let, let, let me uh, first tell you what first means here. Protos is the word in the original, and it means a higher dignity. To be first is to have the higher rank, the greater dignity in Christ's kingdom. To be first is to take the lowest place, the place of a slave. Now, I am cognizant of the fact that the whole concept of a slave can be problematic for some for historical reasons. But you need to go back to the first century. That may help you understand that slavery then was a different kind of thing than what was experienced in this country. But even better than that, this is the stunner. The high king of heaven, Jesus Christ, at his incarnation, became a slave. Philippians 2.7 tells us this. 
It says in the NASB, it translates the word as bondservant. Uh, the word is the nominative case, or is doulos. Jesus became truly a slave. Think about this. The eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, became a slave. He is not telling us to do anything that he hasn't already done. The highest became the lowest. The Lord of heaven and earth became a slave. Jesus saying, you want to be first? You have to be a slave. Consider everyone your master and yourself as a slave to serve all. All those who want to be first have the high position of dignity rank in the kingdom. This is how it's done. Now, I think I need to say something here. So I know how uh, the mind of people can work sometimes. So let's be clear. No believer is to treat another believer like his or her slave. You don't say, well, you know, I'm going to help you. <laughs> No, that's a perversion in thinking. Because if you're thinking straight, you're saying, I'm not interested in anybody make, trying to make them my slave. I'm trying to serve them. I want to be their slave. So you might want to discard that nonsense from your thinking. The initiative is with one who wishes or wants to be great in Christ's kingdom. Let me tell you something. That's the place to be great. The people in the world who are great, one day without Christ, they will all be on the ash heap of history, swept away by the winds of eternity. They won't matter. The only ones who will matter will be those who are great in the eternal kingdom of God in Christ. Think about that. You need to have a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective. Christ's kingdom will not go away. This world, it is passing away. And all his great ones along with it. Think about it. The world's great ones whom Jesus describes here, they last for a while on the world stage, and then they die and they go to their just reward. No more. They have no relevancy. You read about the ministry books, they have no relevancy other than maybe an example for other foolish individuals who follow their path. But those who are great in the kingdom of Christ, they're the ones who will be esteemed in the world to come. So Jesus has told us the means to greatness. Now, let's look at the model of greatness. Verse 28, 
first two words in that verse, just as, refer to our Lord's attitude of service. He's saying, just as I serve. Just as, notice in the verse here, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He says, my mission was one of service. I didn't come here. Uh, I'm the Son of Man. I did not come here to be served, but to serve. Jesus, in fact, is the supreme example of service to others. Think about it. Uh, You see his ministry recorded in the Gospels. What is he doing? He's constantly serving people, isn't he? Constantly. He had served by teaching and healing one day. He was so tired that he was in a boat, sleep, and a storm came. Disciples thought they were going to die, and Jesus was snoozing through it. He had worn himself out from serving others. He says he uh, did not come to be served. The high king of heaven, the son of man, didn't come to be served, but to serve He is the one all believers are to emulate in their service to fellow believers. When we serve our fellow believers in the body of Christ, what we are doing is emulating Christ. We're Christ-like. Christ-likeness. I read the opening of this Uh, service from John chapter 13. Jesus uh, exemplified humble service. Think, you remember the story, the guys uh, there for the Lord's Supper is terminating the Passover as a central uh, remembrance in the Christian faith and their feet were dusty, you know, their sandals and they walked on dusty streets and the tradition was that Someone would have water there. You came in, you can wash your feet. Well, these guys, you know, they're all full of themselves. They ain't washing anybody. Matthew, uh-uh. Thaddeus, I've seen them. Mm-mm. I ain't getting close to those bad boys. So, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to wash anybody's feet. That was a need. They're too proud. Think about Jesus. It's the eve of his crucifixion. In a little while from that point, he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to then go to six trials, and he's going to die on a cross. Can you imagine that? All of that was going on, and these guys here, I'm not washing anybody's feet. Jesus knew who he was and where he come from, where he's going. He gets up, puts a towel on, and he's going to show these, young, these men, uh, this is how you serve. And he washed their feet. told you he is a slave. He is the creator. He designed their feet. Peter opened his mouth, which was attached to his brain. There was a design flaw. No, no, I'm just teasing. (laughs) And he said, no, you ain't washing my feet. And the high king of heaven Washed his feet. Jesus goes on to tell him, this is my example. He's not saying you got to wash people's feet. That was a means to exemplify or give an example of how to serve 
to meet the needs of others. That's what he meant. And so they had to learn that. Think about this. Our Lord in that text met their temporal need. The next day he would meet their eternal need. And ours as well. The consummate servant. What is the extent of his service? I've alluded to it already. Let's delve a little more deeply. The son of man. The son of man. Jesus Christ is unique among humanity. The son of man, for example, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is repeatedly called in that prophecy by the Lord, son of man. Son of man denotes frailty, humanness. That's not what it denotes about Jesus. The title, son of man, speaks of a superhuman figure or a divine figure who functions alongside the Ancient of Days, which is a title for God the Father. We see this in Daniel chapter 7. This self-designation identifies Jesus as both God and man, the Son of Man. Jesus uses this title about himself or of himself a number of cases throughout the New Testament. You're all familiar with it because you've read the New Testament. You've seen it used by our Lord. I think it's in Mark 2. He uses it as the Son of Man in his divine authority to forgive sins. He uses the title of himself in his divine power to resurrect the dead. He uses the same title in reference to his future return to earth, his second coming. The Son of Man is going to come with great glory and power. Our Lord also uses it um, in his humiliation as the man, as a man, to save the lost. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It is in his humiliation, becoming one of us, that he saves us. We see him being noticed in the text and to give his life a ransom for many. In the ancient world, the person being ransomed was either a slave, an imprisoned enemy, or a condemned criminal. The ransom payment had to be made to free the said individuals. Notice the text says Jesus gave his life, the Son of Man, as a ransom for us. Zero in on that little preposition F-O-R, for, there in our text. In that little preposition, there's... A theology. I like to call it the theology of a preposition. The word in the Greek is anti. Uh, transliterated A-N-T-I. 
And it can be translated instead of or on behalf of unto. Jesus came to give his life a ransom instead of many. That's what he did. During the French Revolution, a young man was condemned to die by guillotine. He was loved by many, but one loved him more than all, and that was his father. Father and son had the same name. There are a list of the people who were to die by guillotine. When the name of the condemned young man was read, the father, he answered. It's the father who is beneath the guillotine. The axe fell and severed his head from his body and separated him from time and moved him into eternity. See that as an image of Christ who loved us and gave his life instead of us. I'll tell you something else. The Son of Man was the only one who could make the payment. Only one who could ransom us. Instead of, on behalf of, it's substitutionary atonement. He did it instead of us. He died instead of us. The many. The many really uh, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12, is the fourth servant song in Isaiah's prophecy. It prophesies about the servant who is coming, the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, and that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ prophesied. You see the word in our text, many? It is found also in Isaiah 53, verse 11. Speaking of Christ coming, it says, will justify the many. Who's the many? The vast number of people who will believe on him. who will trust him as Lord and Savior throughout all of redemptive history. That's the many. The wonderful reality is about him that he gave his life instead of the many. Wow. His life, he was able to give it for all of the massive throng of people who would believe in him. Let me tell you something. Jesus is a servant. He's he just given us a lesson about servanthood and being a slave. and He did all of that. 
And my little sermon here is titled, The Way Up is Down. Jesus Christ. It says this in Philippians 2, 8. And verse 9. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now get this, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now get that, ultimate service, ultimate exaltation. The way up in God's kingdom is to go down. Because when we go down to serve, God will then elevate us up. Will elevate us. Let us bow and pray. We thank you, O God, our Father, for this lesson, your word which contradicts the mindset of the world and even our own about what constitutes greatness. Help us to continue to pursue real greatness, to mimic our Lord Jesus Christ in his greatness, the greatest one of all who ever trod this earth, the great one, the high king of heaven who came to remedy our sin problem. We bless you, our Lord, for your gracious work. Thank you for what you've done for us. Continue to enable us to look like you as we serve in your body. And we pray these things now in Christ's holy name. Amen. Christ died for sinners. You could be in the many. 